the overarching invitation of Wake Chapel Church is just as you have heard, come to Jesus. The door is always open to come to him. And that is our invitation to you. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me please to Matthew chapter 6. Choir, thank you, David, musicians, Jesus, the very thought of thee. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you very much. A couple of weeks ago, well, actually longer than that, much longer than that, really. I had felt led to have a series of messages on the subject of prayer. And I pondered over where to start. I've preached on the Lord's Prayer before. And many of the other prayers throughout the Word of God I have brought messages on. But I still felt a burden to bring a series of messages on the subject of prayer. And so I started with what we refer to generally as the Lord's Prayer. And we, in our introductory message, uh, tried to set some things straight about the Lord's Prayer. It is a pattern or a model prayer. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And in response to their request, he did not give them something that they were to repeat every time they prayed. Uh, In churches that are more liturgical, and there's not anything necessarily wrong with that, but in churches that are more liturgical than than Wake Chapel, uh, often you find that's repeated every Sunday. Um, Quite candidly, I think the context of uh, the Lord's Prayer that we call that in the New Testament works against doing that. Uh, It says in verse 7 of Matthew 6, And when you pray, when you are praying, do not use meanness repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their much speaking. I take it that that would preclude repeating the Lord's Prayer every time you come together. This is a model prayer. This is, uh, uh, it gives areas of things for which we need to pray. And actually, when we refer to this, and I know this causes some people some consternation, but I believe it's true. Jesus couldn't pray these words. And the reason Jesus couldn't pray these words is because you find in here, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. Jesus couldn't pray those words. He had no sins. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, the writers of the New Testament tell us. But I still, uh, I am aware of the fact that uh, as long as time continues, folks will repeat these words and refer to them as the Lord's Prayer. And that's, I can handle that all right, okay? It's just that, In our thinking, I want those of us who call Wake Chapel home to be clear in our thought patterns when it comes to what we generally refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Just to be clear, I'm not on a a crusade at all 
to stop calling it the Lord's Prayer. I'm not on a great crusade for churches to stop repeating this every Sunday. I'm just trying to tell us, those of us who call Wake Chapel home, that this is what I believe and this is where it comes from, okay? It speaks about the repetition and it says, forgive us, and Jesus couldn't pray that. So all of that notwithstanding, I am not out of sorts with those who refer to this as the Lord's Prayer and those who repeat it. I'm not out of sorts with them at all. I do believe, however, that this is a pattern that Jesus gave to his disciples to teach them what to pray for. And we started, and this outline has been in your bulletin several times, we started with God's person, hallowed be thy name. We moved to God's program, his kingdom, and his will. And the point that I have made repeatedly about that is, when we come to praying, the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray is to put him first. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom and your will. And then he gets to our daily provision. Give us this day. And then from there, to forgive us. That's personal purity. So we have God's person, God's program, God's provision, God's purity, and then God's protection. Lead us and deliver us. So that's where I have been, um, that's how I have been moving through uh, the Lord's Prayer. We come this morning to God's provision in verse 11. And before we get into that, would you bow your heads and your hearts and let's ask God to help us to understand his word. Father, you have promised the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Thank you for that great promise. We don't have to depend on men and women to teach us the scriptures. Those who've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior have resident within them the Spirit of God. And He is the only, the only infallible teacher. We ask His ministry in our hearts and in our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God's provision. Chapter 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Several things strike me as needing some emphasis as we look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. First of all, it's bread and not cake. No big deal. Everybody knows that, right? But I think the application is that I do not believe God is as interested in his children having the luxuries of life as his children are. He didn't say cake, he said bread. Now I know all the phrases. I've used them for years. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. I've used that more times than I can remember. But sometimes I'm afraid that's used, that expression, and others like that or similar to that are used to justify our overindulgence. What do you think? Please hear me well. I'm not saying that it is evil to desire or to have the luxuries of life. 
all of us enjoy the finer things. It's just that I believe our Lord is less concerned about his children enjoying life's finer things than his children are. Think about it. Not being dogmatic. I share with you my thoughts. You think about it. I am reminded of two things. Looking at the life of Christ. How did he live? Was his life characterized in such a way that those in his generation knew that he cared a great deal about the finer things of life? Well, the answer to that's no, but then we respond there by simply saying, yes, but that was a long time ago. They didn't have the things that we have today, and that is true. I'm also reminded of Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, my God shall supply all your what? Just tell me the next word. Needs. According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He has not promised anywhere in his word to provide all of our wants. God does allow us to enjoy many of the luxuries of life. He gives us more than our needs. I don't think there's anyone who would deny that. God is gracious and gives to his children more than their needs. Let me ask you a question. Would you in all candor say, I only have my absolute needs? I doubt there's anyone in this room that would say that. He does provide our needs. And he allows us to have a lot more than just those needs. But he has not promised to provide our wants. He's never done that. Sometimes I fear that in gaining the accoutrements of luxury, all the finer things of life, I fear that we gain them to our spiritual detriment. Again, you think about it. And trust God to be your teacher. When he said, daily bread, what do you mean? And then the second thing I would suggest about this phrase is it says daily. Um, I suppose all of us, well, no doubt all of us have pantries and freezers. But we still should trust God for our daily needs. What's behind what is on our table is our Heavenly Father. And he has not promised to give it to us in such abundance that we just stack it up and never have to pray for give us this day our daily bread. Because the larder's full, pantry's full, can't get anything else in the freezer. 
We are still to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and to thank Him when we sit down to enjoy it. God's provision. Daily bread. We move next in these verses to personal purity. His provision is first that we look at this morning. Next is his personal purity. If you have your Bible open, would you look with me please? Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not... Excuse me, let me, let me go down to verse 14. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. These three verses put together are somewhat problematic. Uh, before I get to that, forgiveness is important to everybody. I have read more than once, psychologists tell us that if everyone could be assured of forgiveness, half of the people in mental institutions in America today could be released. Forgiveness is important. The world even recognizes that. Now, what we need to take note of here is what kind of forgiveness is in view here. Is this the forgiveness that comes when a person trusts Christ as Savior? Is that what we're talking about here? Forgive us our debts. Is he talking about when you come to trust Christ and you're forgiven all of your sins, is that the kind of thing that he's speaking of here? Or is it the kind of thing that uh, as a Christian moves through his spiritual journey, we sin, we do things that uh, do not please our Heavenly Father? And then the Bible teaches us to confess our sins to our Heavenly Father and receive His forgiveness. So which kind of forgiveness is in view here? Well, I don't think that's a hard problem to answer. I think the text of, uh, that we're looking at uh, answers the question for us. This is a model or a pattern prayer for those who can pray as He starts, Our Father who art in heaven. This is not for folks who cannot honestly pray our Father. So this is a family thing. Um, This is the kind of thing that when you sin, when I sin, we go to the Lord and we confess our sins and then he gives us forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, kind of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of sin that is in the year. It's a family thing. Parents, let me ask you a question. I I don't need to ask any kind of answers. Your kids ever do things that displease you? And I've tried to find a mild term there, displease. Um, You know, I'm not, well, I am like any other parent, okay? Your kids do stuff sometimes that just uh, tear you out of the frame. Yeah, if they're kids, and if you're a parent, that happens. It changes when that happens. It changes fellowship in in the home. It breaks communion 
but it doesn't break union. They're still our children. We still love them. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Forgive us our debts. Debts are things that we owe. Luke uses the term trespass. This is a reference to, to sins, not to financial debts. Okay? It's a reference to sins, not to financial debts. Now, we have a, a somewhat troubling and even problematic phrase here. Verse 12 says, as we forgive our debtors. Maybe you've thought it. Lots of folks have. Is, are we working on some kind of merit system here? We are only forgiven to the degree that we forgive other people. Is this a merit system that is being put in place here for forgiveness? As we forgive our debtors might seem to sound like it. If it is, this is a merit system and it's the only time in the New Testament anything like this comes before us. How do we understand this? I believe the point here is that those who have already been forgiven by God will manifest a forgiving spirit. I want to massage this thought just a little bit. Those who have been forgiven already by God will manifest a forgiving spirit. And I think that's behind these words. It's very difficult to imagine how a person who has been forgiven everything can be less than forgiving to other people. I know I'm not a rocket scientist. I, don't have, I have a hard time understanding that. How can somebody who's been forgiven everything not forgive other people? Let me give you at least six reasons why we should be forgiving people. Number one, God commands it. Vengeance belongs to him. Number two, we should follow our Lord's example. Number three, the person injured needs our love. You remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 13? Oh, no man, no thing but to love. The person who is injured needs our love. Number four, harboring a grudge and planning revenge deprives us of strength that we need to be effective in our own ministries, in our own lives. Number five, forgiving others will impart peace of mind and of heart to us. There are two, two other things which uh, concern me. Okay, may I share them with you? I don't know how many times I've either heard or perhaps said well, I can forgive such and such and such and such, but I can't forgive this. Ever said that? Read through the New Testament. The only number given for forgiveness is 70 times 7. And that doesn't mean 490 times you forgive. On 491, you don't. The point with 70 times 7 is limitless. Folks, um, I need to say this particularly for guests who might be here. Wake Chapel is not really a liturgical church. 
And very, very seldom over my ministry have I ever asked you to repeat something with me. But I'm going to this morning. I don't know who said it first. I can't find out. But to me, it is extremely important, very, very simple, and yet very meaningful. And it's this. I can forgive anything because I have been forgiven everything. May I ask a question for I ask you to do this with me. Anybody here who hadn't been forgiven by God everything? No. You have been forgiven. If you're a child of God, you have been forgiven everything. The worst, most vile thing that you have ever done or thought, you have been forgiven for that. But you can't forgive somebody else something that's less than your worst. I want you to say it with me. Let me repeat it for you one more time. I can forgive anything because I have been forgiven everything. Would you say that with me, please? I can forgive anything because I have been forgiven everything. The Lord heard us say that. May God help us to do it. People who know Christ as Savior have been forgiven everything. No sin, thank you, no sin that you've ever committed will ever in eternity future be brought up before you. It just doesn't happen that way. God doesn't do that. I love the expression, he puts our sins behind his back. Literally, that phrase behind his back means between his shoulder blades. You know how hard it is to get to you between your shoulder blades? Sure. That's the figure that's used of what God's done with our sins. They're, he's put them behind his back, between his shoulder blades. They'll never be called into account again. No matter what they were, no matter what they are. And if that's happened to me, and it's happened to you then why can't we be forgiving to other people when they do their worst to us? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Verses 12, 14, and 15 have to do with purity and forgiveness. Now I want to go back and pick up verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The word temptation here can have two meanings. One, it can refer to a solicitation to do evil. Two, it can refer to testing. So, when we read here in verse 13, lead us not into temptation... What's in view? What kind of temptation is in view? Does God lead his, does God tempt his children and solicit them to evil? Is that what the word means? May I say to you, the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere. It doesn't even hint at it. In fact, it tells us just the opposite is true. God does not solicit his children to do evil. Well, I don't know about you, but I'd be lying to you. I wouldn't be telling you the truth. If uh, I didn't say there are times I feel solicited to do evil. 
James chapter 1, verse 13. Here's the source of our solicitations to do evil when they come to us. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Listen, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It is our own lust, our own desire. That's what that word means. It has no particular sexual connotation. Our desire, that's what leads us, that's what solicits us to do evil. That's what James said. And, of course, that's from inside. Outside, external temptations come from the enemy of souls, Satan. So, in our text, we have an expression of the desire that we not be brought into temptation by the evil one. But remember, when and if temptation comes, again the promise. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not permit you to be tempted above that which you are able. But will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. This is a rebuke to me, and I think it's a rebuke to every Christian. Um, sometimes we feel like we're just tempted beyond measure. But if you read the Bible, that isn't true. That isn't true. He will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. Then we come to the concluding doxology of this prayer for or this model prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let me conclude my thoughts on what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer with three lessons. Number one, when we pray, God ought to be first. I know this is hard because it's not our habit. We have needs. My child is sick. Corporate headquarters has decided I no longer need a job. I've got a daughter who's having difficulty in college. And the list can go on and on and on. And our temptation is to speak of those things, Lord, help, and there we go with our list. If I understand the model prayer, Jesus said, the first thing is pray in this fashion, pray in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are to pray, if I understand this at all, we are to put Him first in our praying, to hallow His name. And we spent some time talking about how to do that two Sundays back, to hallow His name, to pray about His kingdom, to pray that His will would be done. I confess 
my fault here. I don't always do that. But when I don't, I think I'm wrong. When we go to prayer, we need to pray about hallowing His name. How many names of the Lord do you know? No verbal responses. How many do you know? There are dozens on the pages of Scripture to hallow His name. To pray about His kingdom coming. We spent time talking about that back in 2 Samuel and other passages. Matthew, the book of Revelation, so on. To pray that His kingdom would come on this earth. To pray about His will being done. He ought to be first. When we bow our heads and close our eyes and go to pray. Second, the brevity of this model prayer. At an average reader's rate, you can pray these words in 9 through 15 of chapter 6. You can pray these words in less than a minute. Normally, prayer ought to be brief. I take that as a lesson here. Normally, prayer ought to be brief. The Bible says men are not heard for their much speaking. I understand, perhaps as well, if not better than most, how prayers can become run along. Pray about everything and everybody. And we need to pray about these matters. But yet I come back to the brevity of the model prayer. Louise and I hadn't been at Wake Chapel very long. and The church very graciously had a, a, a dinner back here and a lot of you were there and a lot of folks came and whatever and it was <clears throat> a, a great meal. You could see it all out on the tables and everything like that. Well, I'm not absolutely certain but I think uh, Curtis Holloman was the chairman of the board deacons at that time. And as such, he was in charge. And Curtis called on a gentleman to lead us in prayer for the meal. That was what he was supposed to do. So he did it. The gentleman that he called on to pray, his granddaughter was standing right behind me. Now, if you've put, don't try to put all this together. You get me in trouble. I don't want to do that. But anyway, his granddaughter was standing right behind me. And as soon as Curtis called this gentleman to pray, his granddaughter right behind me says, Oh, my word, we never will get to eat. <laughs> A granddaughter can do such. Put God first, the brevity of the model prayer, and third, this is, an, a great, this is a great appeal to pray. What we call the Lord's Prayer is a great appeal.
to pray. Ever riding around on Wednesday, maybe you're late getting home from work, you ride by churches, are they dark on Wednesday night? Many of them, not all of them, but many of them. You know why? Because prayer meetings passe anymore. I don't have time to go pray. What are you talking about? This is a great appeal to pray. It was John Bunyan who said, We can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. I think John Bunyan was right. May God make us a people who learn to pray. Let's not just say the words from Matthew 6. Let's learn what Jesus was teaching about how to pray. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we bow before you as our Father this morning. We ask that our lives, our lips might hallow your name. May others see that we live as your children. May our lives be a continual invitation to come and to be a part of your family and your kingdom. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Amen. Could well be somebody feels the need to rededicate themselves to the Lord. If you do, you can do that where you sit. I'm going to stand right here. If you desire to make that public, I'll meet you here. If you're in this place and you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, and the Lord is leading you to link your life with Wake Chapel Church, I'll meet you here. God bless you. Thank you for being in church. I believe personally that we have, in this hour of worship, hallowed the Lord's name. These moments have been in obedience to what he has instructed us. God bless you. Greg Deal is our deacon of the day. There he is. <laughs> well, I can't blame him. If my daughter were expecting like his is right here, I'd stay with her too. <laughs> After Craig prays for us, we'll sing God be with you till we meet again. Let me urge you as I most often do think of somebody when you sing these words God be with you
till we meet again. Craig, go pray for us. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bring all glory and honor and praise to your name. For you alone are worthy. Um, There is no name above yours. You are the holy and living God. And we bring you praise um, not just for all the mighty things that you do, but simply because of who you are. Thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for this church, this body of believers, and for the ability that we have to get up and, under our own power, come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to join our hearts and our voices in praise and adoration, to lift each other up, to be edified by your word. And now that you've equipped us, Father, send us out into the world in which we live and work each day that the way we live our lives would be the strongest testimony possible for the love of Christ and how he can change hearts and give the gift of salvation as no other can. Father, there are so many on our prayer list. We have needs in this church body and we just ask that you would touch each one with grace and mercy peace and strength to face the challenges that they face. There are needs that we know in addition are unspoken and we lift those to you as well. And we also, Father, especially ask uh, your blessings on our mission of the week, the Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, and in particular student aid there. Uh, The seminary has existed for many, many years, Father, faithfully equipping those to serve you with their lives in called ministry and we just ask for your continued blessing on the seminary and those who are teaching and instructing and those students who feel the call and are there preparing for their life in ministry all this we now ask in the precious name of jesus christ amen